0: This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. When it comes to building stuff, humans are the dominant species, but beavers are second. And unlike humans, everything beavers build actually changes the environment for the better. This hour, we're going to learn all about beavers and the work that they do with Ben Goldfarb. He is the author of Eager, the Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And he is with me on the line today. Hello, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. In your book, you profile a number of people that you describe as beaver believers. They're people who are working to protect the species. They're often advocating for moving beavers into ecosystems they believe would benefit from the presence of beavers. And you also describe yourself as a beaver believer. So when did that happen for you? When did you first realize what this species was capable of?
1: Yeah, you know, I think like like most people who spend a lot of time uh, fishing and hiking and and canoeing and being outside in in beaver habitat, you know, I I always had a, a kind of a baseline appreciation for uh, just how ingenious this this animal is and and uh, all of the remarkable things that it does as an engineer. But I didn't really start to think about it as being a sort of a profound uh, benefit to the environment until a few years ago. I was, I was living in Seattle. Um, and i met uh, I met a, a beaver biologist, uh, this guy named Kent Woodruff who's the director of uh, then the director of the the Metau Beaver project in the Metau, in the Metau Valley in central washington and basically what the what the Metau Beaver Project does is they they live trap quote unquote nuisance beavers beavers that are clogging up road culverts or cutting down people 's trees or flooding their fields or what have you and they they relocate those beavers. To sort of high in the the headwaters of the Okan, of the Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest in central Washington, uh, the idea being you know, that beavers can store some water uh, at the headwaters of these streams and, and provide water uh, to downstream farmers, ranchers, uh, fish and wildlife, irrigators uh, and, and so on so that was sort of so it was seeing that incredible these incredible ponds and wetlands that beavers had created and what an amazing aid they were. To water storage in in central Washington, which is really a pretty a pretty arid place, um, that was sort of what got me thinking about this animal as, as potentially a, a huge help to us human beings.
0: Well, and all right, let's talk a little bit about beavers um, and how they can transform these landscapes. And and I guess let's dig into to beaver biology just a little bit because uh, they are sort of uniquely built. To be able to transform their landscapes, they're such odd-looking rodents. But tell me, what makes them so perfect for the work that they do?
1: Yeah, so so beavers are semi-aquatic rodents, right? They spend most of their most of their time in the water, uh, and they're really well adapted for that that very unusual semi-aquatic niche that they fill. I mean, first they have incredibly thick, dense fur, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you're an animal that spends all of its time in the water, you know, you have to stay warm somehow. And beavers actually have uh, as many individual hairs on a postage stamp sized patch of skin as we humans have on our entire heads, so, so some of the densest fur in the, the animal kingdom. Uh, they have a second set of transparent eyelids they can close over their eyes, like goggles to help them see underwater. Uh, they have a second set of lips. They have a, a set, they have a set of fur-lined lips behind their front teeth so they can actually close their, their lips underwater while still chewing and dragging branches uh, so that they don't drown. Uh, they're just incredibly, you know, of course they have this, this amazing tail, which, which, which is sort of the, the classic beaver feature, this, this amazing rudder while they're swimming. It's actually a, um, it's a fat storage mechanism, so just like bears put on fat for the winter, beavers put on fat in their tails. Uh, it's just an amazing appendage, and they're incredibly well adapted for their, their underwater world.
0: They have a really complicated, well, maybe not really complicated, but a family structure that's actually somewhat similar to humans in a way. The way that they um, continue to interact with their family and depend on multiple generations to care for young and and take care of the structures that the beavers have built. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, they're very family oriented for sure. So, the, the, the mating pair, the, the adult male and female, are generally monogamous. They, they mate for life. Uh, and typically, beaver kits, the offspring, will stick around the, the lodge, the beaver house, um, for the first couple of years of life. Um, so, typically, you'll get, you'll get the, the mating pair, you'll get the, the newborn kits who are born in the spring, uh, you'll have the one year olds, and then the two year olds all, all share a lodge together. Uh, and sometime during their their second year the two year olds will will disperse they'll they 'll go off like you know teenagers heading off to college or or work uh looking for their own territories but while they're while they 're all together, you know beavers are what 's called cooperative breeders so all of the you know the older siblings are helping to raise the younger younger siblings all of the kids are observing their parents you know learning the kind of the finer points of of dam and lodge construction they 're really amazingly social cooperative animals.
0: Now, you talk about them learning the finer points of dam construction, but there's definitely an instinct to dam flowing water that has been observed in beavers. This is something that, that beavers that didn't have influence from their parents or older siblings would try to do, right?
1: Right. So the, so the kind of the classic uh, the classic beaver experiment that was done was this Um, a a, uh, kind of behavioral scientist named Lars Wilson, um, a Scandinavian guy sometime in the 60s, put beavers that had never seen dams being built before. They took these beavers and put them in these these concrete walled rooms uh, that had no no water in them, uh, left them a bunch of sticks, and then played the sound of running water through a speaker in the floor. Uh, And beavers triggered by the sound of flowing water actually dammed the speaker. Uh, so you know, so so people often often say, well, I mean, clearly, you know, these are sort of these instinctive animals that are are they're not actually very intelligent. They're just sort of uh, you know doing what they're hardwired to do when they when they build dams, you know. And I think that there, I mean, there's some truth to that. Certainly, the impulse to to build dams is really deeply hardwired. But you know, I think it's I mean, it's sort of like I always think that like like language, you know. I mean, we humans are, are sort of instinctively programmed to to speak, um, but you know. Babies sort of babble incoherently until they actually learn the language and can can kind of speak properly. And I think that you know if you've ever observed a family of beavers working together at a dam, it's just it's very clear that the the kits are closely watching the parents and imitating them and following you know right right in their path. And and um, or it's it's just clear that there's that there's some degree of learning happening. So I think like you know like most complex behaviors, there's there's it's it's a combination of instinct and intergenerational knowledge transmission
0: not everybody's had an opportunity to to really see a beaver dam up close and when you do get the opportunity i mean i i find them to just be extraordinary to think about the fact that again these large rodents have managed to to build these incredible constructions so tell me a little bit about beaver dams and how they do it because it's remarkable
1: yeah, so 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 the the reason that beavers build dams and I think a lot of people don't don't understand what the point of the dam is, right? I mean, the point of the dam is that is that when beavers are on land, you know, they're they're um, one biologist described them to me as as slow, smelly packages of meat. You know, they're just kind of these big waddling delectable creatures that get eaten by bears and coyotes and uh, and wolves in places that have wolves and cougars. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of prey to a lot of different uh, large carnivores. Uh, but, of course, you know, as we said, they're, they're these amazingly, um, you know, they're well adapted to this underwater life they have. They're incredibly powerful and agile swimmers. So by, you know, by building dams and holding back water and, and expanding and deepening these ponds, you know, they're really just creating their own their own shelter. Uh, so I think that's the, that's the first thing to remember about dams is the the point of them uh, is, is this, this sort of security mechanism. Um, and, yeah, I mean, some of these dams can be unbelievably... Enormous, you know. I mean, uh, there's there's one dam in in uh, Alberta, up in the kind of the Canadian swamps, uh, that's a half mile long and can be seen from space. Uh, you know, other, in other places, they'll they'll build lots of of smaller dams. You know, these I mean, these structures come in an amazing variety of of, um, of shapes and sizes and, and materials too. You know, there are places that I've seen where, you know, there's not a whole lot of vegetation available and beavers are, are building out of out of rocks primarily. You know, just yesterday I saw, I saw a dam that was made out of, out of, Jap- uh, out of uh, Japanese knotweed, which is kind of an invasive reed. Um, so, they don't, so, you know, of course they prefer to build with wood, but, you know, in places where other materials are available, they can be pretty resourceful.
0: Well, and it's not just the uh, wood that they put together, those sticks that they put together. Of course they have to, to glue that together to block up all of the, the holes in that as well.
1: Right. So they're yes, they're using lots of mud as well. That's a, that's a great point. There, you know, typically I think that, you know, the the, the foundation is it will, it will often have some rocks in it, and then they kind of, you know, wedge these larger pieces into the into the bed of the stream that kind of tilt up at an angle, and then they'll weave smaller pieces through that, and then they'll kind of seal up the whole construction with mud that they dredge up from the the bottom of the stream or or pond. Uh, but you know, dams. I mean, they're certainly these dams are slowing down and holding large amounts of water, but they're, but they're still somewhat permeable. You know, water is, water is still generally trickling through the dam. So, you know, people often complain that, well, beavers are, you know, are, are stealing our water. You know, they're holding back water, and that's, all that water is not making it to downstream users. Well, I mean, all that, all that water is going to make it downstream eventually. Um, it's, just, it's just taking a, a little while. But certainly, you know, dams, for as, as effective as they are at holding back water, they're not they're not using all of it it's it's you know gradually trickling through these structures
0: right the uh we think about beaver lodges and and that's something that beavers do build they will build lodges that they live in and they can be extraordinary constructions but beavers are also happy with burrows as well that's a little easier
1: yeah exactly you know oftentimes You'll see you'll see beavers in places where you know they, they can't build a dam or or a large, like a you know a larger river uh, or a lake you know in, in those situations they're yeah, they're totally happy just tunneling into banks basically, and uh, creating creating their homes in the in the banks.
0: I'm talking with Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager: The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, published in 2018. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking about beavers with Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben, uh, we were just talking about beavers and how they do what they do. Let's talk about the, the results of what they do. So they build a dam and they back up the water. They create a pond that they can live in and they're really creating habitat for themselves. But what else happens? I mean, they really transform that environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and look, we know, we know that, that there's, there's hardly a, a creature on Earth that doesn't, that doesn't depend on water, right? And, and by slowing and spreading and storing water, beavers are creating these really amazing habitats for all kinds of critters. You know, I know I know in, in Iowa, you know, lots of, lots of your listeners are probably big duck hunters, uh, and, you know, beavers create fantastic waterfowl habitat. You know, those are just amazing areas for ducks to forage, to nest, to, to stop over during migrations. Um, so fantastic waterfowl habitat. You know, out here we have, we have moose. I mean, moose love beaver ponds. Uh, amphibians, frogs, and salamanders do really well. All kinds of fish, of course. I mean, they're just incredible um, rearing habitat for juvenile salmon and trout. Um, so it's, you know, in, in some places it's, it's almost hard to name a, an animal that doesn't uh, benefit from these incredible water features. You know, in, in, the, in the West where I live, Uh, These wetlands cover 2% of of total land area and support 80% of biodiversity. So just, you know, an incredible benefit for everything that uh, swims, flies. And, and crawls in, in North America.
0: Well, I have a question that actually relates to that. Uh, this is from Jeremy. He says, in consideration of the decline of migrating fish populations, many aquatic biologists consider beaver dams an obstacle preventing access to spawning waters. Is this an imaginary problem, or is this credible?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good question. I I think that it's I think that it is largely an imaginary problem. I think that there are some situations. Um, when you know during during really low water late in the summer, um, when when beaver dams can potentially be an obstacle, but I think that for the most part it's a it's a non-issue. You know one one study uh, in in Oregon uh, that that tagged salmon and basically tracked them moving upstream found individual fish that crossed more than 200 beaver dams. Um, so they're you know they're jumping these things, they're swimming around them during high flows. Um, you know, I've, I've heard of fish actually wriggling through the dam itself, through the, kind of the, the woody, the gaps in this, these woody structures. Um, so I think that, for the most part, um, the notion that, that beaver dams are fish barriers is certainly overblown. Um, there are some situations when, when it, it can be an issue. But the, the really intensive management of, of beavers for fish, you know, in, in Wisconsin, I mean, uh, you know, they tear out thousands and thousands of dams a year for brook trout. Um, I think I think those kinds of really intensive management actions are not justified by the by the evidence.
0: Well, and on the flip side, you actually point out in your book how, in many ways, the salmon population is dependent on beavers.
1: Uh, yeah, hugely dependent, yeah. And that's you know, out out here in in Washington where I live, you know, that's the that's the biggest reason for for beaver relocation and, and restoration and reintroduction is, you know, we know they create fantastic juvenile salmon habitat. You know, if you're a baby fish, you know, as long as, as, as you're pinky, uh, you know, you don't want to be in the, the main channel. You're just going to get blown downstream by the, the fire hose of the current, right? You want some kind of nice, slow, slack water, pool side channel, some kind of slow water area where you can hang out, take a breather, find some food, you know, shelter from predators under under a little bit of brush, uh, and beavers create these really fantastic, uh, you know, juvenile fish rearing areas. Uh, and there's been huge amounts of science proving what how beneficial beavers are for for salmon.
0: Well, and I also think we need to to look at how prevalent beavers were pre-settlement in and in pre I guess uh, exploration by Europeans in the United States. Uh, You know, (laughs) these these populations are having a problem now. These fish populations are having a problem now. But obviously they were plentiful when beavers were everywhere. Give us an idea of how common beavers were before the trappers came.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to it's hard for us to imagine today just how Ponded and and wetland covered and and lush North America was thanks in large part to beavers. You know, I mean, you read some of these these old uh, trappers and explorers accounts. You know, unfortunately we don't we don't have too many of these these records. You know, a lot of a lot of the, the I mean the first wave of fur trappers who crossed North America. Um, you know, they they weren't always the most literary guys and they didn't leave behind a, a ton of detailed ecological observations. So it's in, in some ways it's hard for us to know, you know, what North America really looked like, but you know, we, we, can, we can get these, these fragments, you know, and, and I mean, one, one um, observation that I, I love is, you know, as an explorer crossing the state of, of Indiana, um, you know, they couldn't find a, a dry place to camp for 100 miles because Beavers had so thoroughly ponded things up. You know, there are amazing accounts of, of early trappers navigating the area around the, around the Great Lakes, around Lake Superior, uh, and, and basically having to crawl over the ground um, because the, the ground was so marshy thanks to the influence of beavers. They couldn't, they couldn't walk. They had to sort of spread their weight out and you know, crawl like a frog over the, over the, the land. Uh, you know, Lewis and Clark, when they, when they went up the Missouri River in Montana, and um, you know, in, in many of the tributaries w- were so thoroughly dammed and ponded by beavers that, that Lewis and Clark actually couldn't, couldn't navigate by boat. They had to, they had to, to go up to the ridgelines and walk along the ridgelines. Um, because, it, again, the beavers had so thoroughly impounded these, these streams. Uh, so, you know, it's hard for us to understand what this continent looked like, but there's no question it was just a much wetter, lusher place. And, you know, historical population estimates are as, much as, or as many as 400 million beavers in, in North America, uh, and today we're probably at, at 15 to 20 million. Um, so, you know, certainly we've got plenty of beavers, but uh, still a small fraction of what, what the population once was.
0: Right. Well, and we were talking about how uh, beavers transform the landscape when they build a dam, but that transformation of the landscape is long-lasting. I mean, we are still seeing the effects of these ancient beavers um, on our landscape today. You describe the the land east of Troy, New York, this lush farmland, as transformed by the beavers that once lived there as the glaciers.
1: Right. So that I mean so that was, you know, sort of the, the trajectory of, of the colonization of North America was, you know, really the, the fur trappers came first and, and wiped out beavers um, you know, from, from countless rivers and streams uh, you know throughout the throughout the Northeast. And once those beavers were eliminated, you know, they were no longer maintaining their dams and the, the dams broke down and these ponds drained. And when, when all of those beaver ponds drained, you know, what was left behind was this uh, this amazing farmland, sort of these flat, treeless, uh, really thick layers of, of organic matter that had settled out in these ponds over the years. I mean, that was the most valuable cropland in, in, in the new world was the the footprint of beaver ponds. And, you know, New England, unlike the Midwest, isn't, you know, it's not the best, uh, the best farming conditions. It's pretty rocky and, and infertile. So beavers really helped to make agriculture possible uh, in the New World after they were trapped out. So, as you said, the legacy of, these, of this, this beaver infrastructure can be incredibly long-lasting.
0: Well, and that, that cycle works to replenish the soil and, and make land richer and more fertile even today in areas where beavers have not been eradicated because beavers don't stay in their pond. They, they don't keep a dam forever, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the really cool things about these animals is how how dynamic these these systems are. You know, you'll you'll get beavers showing up in a stream, building a dam, creating a, a pond, and you know, over I mean, in some places, you know, there there are there are sites that have been continuously occupied for for decades or even centuries. But you know, oftentimes it's they're pretty uh, they're pretty in and out. You know, they'll they'll deplete their food supply, um, or you know, or the or the what's very common is the pond will begin to fill in with sediment. Um, You know, as the the water slows down and the sediment gets released from the the water column uh, and, you know, these ponds start to fill in and eventually the beavers will abandon them uh, and they'll, you know, they'll turn into these amazing lush wet meadows with just a a thin trickle of water moving through them. And then the next family of beavers will will show up a few years later once the food supply has regrown and the the cycle starts all over again, you know, so it's, it's, uh, they're just incredibly dynamic, transitional landscapes that beavers create. And at, at all those different points, you know, they're creating different kinds of habitat, right? I mean, when they're, when they're ponds, they're great fish habitat. Once they're meadows, you know, they're fantastic deer and elk habitat. You know, it's, it's, that's the, kind of the cool thing is that they're, all of the beneficiaries of these beaver complexes are shifting as well.
0: I'm talking with Ben Goldfarb. He's the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And in talking about that cycle and how all of these other species are impacted by the beaver, a keystone species, I think a lot of us have seen um, this wonderful video that, that shows the impact that wolves have had on Yellowstone Park. And uh, wolves are also a keystone species. And until they were brought back to Yellowstone, a lot of us and a lot of scientists even didn't fully understand the impact they could have on an ecosystem and the benefits they would have to all of these other species. But beavers were also reintroduced to Yellowstone. So is that, are, did they get some of the credit for this transformation?
1: Yeah, I think so, you know, and the, and the, the story of, of wolves and beavers in, in Yellowstone is a really sort of complicated interaction, in and yeah, I, I try to explore it in the book, but it's, you know, there's a lot of interesting science there. I mean, basically, you know, I think, I think one of the cool things is that there's this really interesting interaction between wolves and beavers where they, where they both occur, um, which is that, so, you know, in, in many places, um, you know, it, it wasn't just trapping that, that white beavers had, it was also grazing Um, you know, both by, by cattle and by, um, by wild ungulates, by elk and deer. And, uh, you know, the reason for that, of course, is that beavers need generally this, this supply of, of woody trees and shrubs along the stream banks, right? They have to have their, you know, their, their willow or aspen or cottonwood or, or what have you. Um, You know, they need that, that deciduous food resource, you know, and in places where the predators were wiped out, where the, the, cougars and the wolves and the, the grizzly bears were eliminated, you know, there was really nothing controlling the populations of the deer and the elk that, that browse all of that vegetation. So what happens is, you know, the, these uncontrolled ungulate populations will basically eat all of the food and beavers can't reestablish. Um, so, you know, beavers were, were wiped out in Yellowstone by that, by that dynamic, exactly. So, you know, what's, what's happened in the last 10 to 20 years is there. You know, there's been this. This, this so wolves are reintroduced in, in the mid 90s, um, and as they as they came back, they they have sort of worked with beavers. You know, as, as wolves have reduced the elk populations and allowed some of this vegetation to regrow, they've created the conditions where this reintroduced beaver population can then flourish and create these these fantastic ponds that are so great for for fish and waterfowl and songbirds. Um, so there's this really interesting interaction between these two keystone species, kind of helping each other out.
0: Although wolves are known to eat beavers, uh, but they can, yes. they can definitely <laughs> coexist.
1: Yes, wolves, wolves love beavers. Um, for sure.
0: Um, we have a, a question from Connie. She says, I've always wondered why I see evidence of beavers trying to cut down trees that look way too big for a few rodents to move. I'm sure that's a question that has gone through the minds of many people who have seen beaver cut trees. It, and it's got an amazing answer. So Ben, why do they cut down these enormous trees? And then what what can they possibly do with them?
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. So I mean, first, you know, what's, what's important to remember is that beavers in addition to cutting down trees to build with them, they're also they're also eating the inner bark, right? The, the cambium. So you know, in, in many places, you'll see you'll see cuts around the base of the tree, and, and be like, well, right? They can you know they can never topple this giant thing. Um, what are they doing? And you know, the answer often is they're just they're just eating. Um, they're not necessarily going to use that tree in, in construction, um, but you know, they, but they also can um, you know, it's they they can actually fell these really large trees and then, and then section them up. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll fell one giant trunk and then they'll cut the trunk into, into a, a few different sections and then move the individual sections. Uh, so they can be, they can be pretty, pretty resourceful um, in the, the, the way that they move wood across the landscape.
0: And again, I mean, it's amazing that these small creatures can do this incredible work. I mean, their teeth... Alone are so strong, and they they grow throughout their lives, right? So as they as they wear their teeth down, um, cutting wood, the teeth continue to grow.
1: Right. Exactly. Yes. It's the, and the teeth are they're continuously growing, and they're they're also self-sharpening. The way that the kind of the the upper incisors and the lower incisors move together, um, the lower incisors sort of chisel the upper ones into this this point, basically this kind of chisel like. Um, edge that's really good for for cutting. So the teeth, yeah, the teeth are absolutely incredible. And actually, you know, as as you may have, if you've ever seen a beaver, you know, usually when we we see a a cartoon of a beaver, you know, the teeth are white. But in reality, if you've ever seen one, you know that the teeth are actually this kind of bright, uh, vivid, sort of shocking orange color. Um, And the reason for that is that they've actually, they actually have iron, which they derive from their food, built into the chemical structure of their teeth. They have these iron fortified teeth uh, which is pretty incredible,
0: and they they turn orange as they age. They're they're not born with those orange teeth, right? They kind of wear. Yeah, they they turn orange,
1: and they, also, and they also wear off the the outer white layer as they as they go.
0: So, beavers are so resilient and and so resourceful. But we talked about how they used to be everywhere. It's remarkable to me that they were hunted to the verge of extinction in the United States. You mentioned that incredible dense fur; it was so prized by trappers and the people who bought their wares that humans really did almost extirpate the species from North America.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and the real so the so the the reason that beavers were so coveted is that beavers actually have two separate layers of fur. They have the, kind of the outer, what are known as the guard hairs, which are sort of like the long, the long soft ones. Uh, and then underneath it, there's a, another, there's a layer of, of under fur, uh, what's, what's often called beaver wool. Um, and that's, that's sort of this, this thick, really good uh, stuff that that actually the, so the individual hairs of the underfur um have little barbs on them and they lock together like velcro which for the beaver of course you know is, is wonderful from a, a waterproofing standpoint and if you're a hat maker you know that that those interlocking hairs make for this really durable pliable waterproof material that you know, in, in in early North American history, was the most, yeah, the most desired natural resource. You know, along with with timber and, and cod, um, you know, this this these beaver pelts were enormously valuable and uh, really helped drive a lot of a lot of westward expansion.
0: And the beaver really did almost disappear. I mean, was there a point at which we thought it was extinct? Uh, n- not not
1: quite, but we 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 definitely got it down there. You know, like like I said, I mean, when when North when when Europeans arrived in North America you know, there were, um, you know, a few hundred million beavers, probably 400 million is sort of the upper estimate. Um, And by 1900, there were 100,000 left. Um, So a tiny fraction of what, what once existed.
0: All right, we're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. My guest is Ben Goldfarb. He is the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking about beavers with Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, published in 2018. And Ben, we were talking about how beavers very nearly disappeared because of trapping. How did they come back? Why do we have beavers today?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think the most important thing is that, you know, around the turn of the century, around 1900, you know, state wildlife agencies began to recognize that this is a really important animal that we want to return to our landscapes. And, you know, there were a bunch of of beaver relocation programs, uh, where you know, they got beavers mostly from Canada, which which had some of, of North America's last beavers. You know, they'd been they'd been wiped out from from most of the the Northeast and the Midwest. So the only beavers left, uh, in many cases, were were up in Canada. Um, so there were there were a few big, sort of beaver reintroduction projects um, that you know that began to move animals around and get them back to to certain places and. You know, kind of the most famous one of those is there was a, uh, in, in Idaho, um, they actually put beavers in crates, strapped them to parachutes, and dropped them out of airplanes, uh, and uh, and dumped a whole bunch of beavers into the backcountry that way. So, you know, not every Doesn't place got that, like got that creative. that
0: creative, the most gentle <laughs> way to, to reintroduce beavers, not the though. Not
1: gentle, but, but very effective. Yeah, I think that of the 76 beavers they airdropped, 75 of them survived. Only one of them survived. Uh, uh, got out of its its cage in midair and and uh, unfortunately fell to to its death. Wow. Um, but otherwise, it was pretty successful.
0: Well, and okay, <laughs> let's let's talk about that. And we have an email on that subject as well, asking about you know we just talked about the family unit of the beavers. This is from Pete. He says relocating problem beavers to distant headwaters takes the mature males away from the family and kinship. Is this ecological management in action? So, how do you move beavers, breaking up those family structures, and and have it be successful? Because they do need the family structure to do the work that you want them to do, right?
1: Yeah, def- definitely, and you know, and that's a, that's a that's a great point. And um, you know, all of the all of the relocation projects that I'm aware of uh, always attempt to capture and move the entire family unit together. Um, so just just today this this morning I actually went out and uh, I'm you know hanging out with a group in here in Western Washington who's doing some some beaver live trapping uh, and they'd set up a, a handful of traps at this local sort of urban stream where they wanted to get the beavers out of and uh, you know they caught one beaver this morning and then immediately reset and rebaited all the traps and they'll just keep trapping that site until they've until they've caught the rest of the family or as, as close to the rest of the family as possible. So you're absolutely right that you want to move intact family units together. Uh, unfortunately, that's, that's not always possible. You know, sometimes you'll get... So, so. like I said before, you know, when beavers are, are two years old, they they disperse, right? They leave their colony and they strike out on their own, looking to start start their own family. And that's often when beavers get into trouble, uh, you know, when they're looking for a new territory and they end up in somebody's backyard. Um, so, you know, oftentimes you end up capturing these these solo beavers. And when that happens, you know, ideally you can catch... A, you know, a male over here and a female over here and then, you know, take them back to some kind of holding facility and, and hopefully pair them up, uh, sort of play, you know, beaver matchmaker and, uh, and move, uh, move a, a compatible couple uh, onto the landscape together. So that's, that's, the, that's the goal for sure.
0: Um, let's, uh, <laughs> okay, I, I have a, a big question about beaver gender here in a moment, but Bill is on the line from Johnston with a question for you. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Hi, what's your question? Well, the question is, we I live
1: here in Johnson, and I have a small acreage. And I had some beaver on a stream that runs into Beaver Creek, which runs into the Des Moines River, which runs into the Missouri. But, uh, and they cut down some saplings, which I appreciated because, you know, they proliferate like crazy if you leave a piece alone. All of a sudden, though, they disappeared. And
0: um, I just wondered,
1: and then I later on... Uh, few weeks later, I found a, a desiccated uh, corpse of, of a beaver,
0: hmm.
1: small beaver, wasn't very big. And I just wondered what the predator, who are the predators for these things? Or what would that have been? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in uh, Iowa, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I assume you guys have black bears, black bears, coyotes. No, you we know, don't. We oh, have no coyotes, right. Okay. We do right. have coyotes.
0: <laughs> we also have domestic dogs, which. Yeah, that's, well, that's... we do
1: have. We do have fox and yeah, beaver you know, and uh, a fox coyote. is probably
0: pretty pretty unlikely.
1: A, coy- a coyote would take would take uh, especially a young beaver, but you know it's it's also possible. I mean, I'm not sure how much you know how much signs of predation you saw in the animal, but you know, but they're also really susceptible to disease. Um, you know, because they they live in these these close they, li- they live in close quarters. You know, so so disease will often spread really rapidly through a, a, a beaver population. Tularemia is kind of the most common. Um, fatal beaver disease. So, you know, I think that's something that scientists are are still trying to figure out: is you know, to what extent do disease dynamics affect these populations? And you know, it's certainly possible that you uh, that was what you, what uh, happened to yours. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to see them go. to Be honest with you, <laughs> they were doing yeah, well, some good work. Well, I mean, it sounds like you know you're you're part of obviously part of this this larger watershed, and it sounds like you have good habitat, so they'll they'll be back. And you know, I think that's the kind of a good rule of, of, of thumb for beavers is, is if you've had them in one place before, you know, there's, they'll they'll make their way back there eventually.
0: Well, and and Bill, I'm sure that there are um, programs in Iowa that relocate beavers out of areas where they're not wanted. You might want to get in touch with the DNR and see if they can hook you up with a couple of beavers that, that people don't want somewhere else. But thank you so much for your call. And uh, let's talk about beaver gender because you talk about trapping these families and moving males and females together. From the outside, beavers all look alike, don't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's that's one of the challenges of right of doing beaver relocation is that you know how do you tell a male from a female? And the, the issue is that you know beavers, so male beavers, um, don't have external genitalia, right? Which makes sense. I mean, if you're a creature that spends its entire life. Sort of swimming around log jams, you know, You don't want any kind of dangling <laughs> appendage that can get snagged on things. And not in freezing a, cold water, a lot of the and time. And in freezing yeah. cold water, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, so, beavers have, have internal internal genitals, which, you know, which makes it which makes it uh, unless the female is, is actively lactating has has kits. You know, there's really no way to tell a, a male from a female visually. Um, so what you have to do is you have to you have to smell them. Uh, so, so beavers are very scent-oriented animals. They have uh, very poor eyesight, but really fantastic, sensitive smell. Uh, they have two different sets of scent glands that they use to, to mark their territories and leave messages for each other, basically. Um, and what you do is you, you sort of, you know, pin the beaver down, and, and then you squeeze um, the anal gland, which is one of these scent glands, and uh, you, you, know, you kind of squirt out some of the, the scent secretion, and then you sniff it, uh, and if it, if it smells like motor oil uh, it 's a male beaver, and if it smells like cheese it's a it 's a female beaver <laughs> um, so, right, can you
0: do this? Can you tell them apart
1: um, i i have I have sniffed a few i 'm um, probably not experienced enough yet to do it with one hundred percent accuracy, um, but certainly the the beaver biologists I know um, can can tell a male from a female uh, instantly at a sniff
0: oh, all right, right. Um, <laughs> so now, a lot of people don't like beavers. They don't want them on their land. Uh, beavers often put themselves in suburban situations where, of course, you know humans have a nice little retention pond or something like that. It looks like good beaver habitat to a beaver, but then people aren't very happy with that. Um, you write quite a bit about how people can learn to coexist with beavers in their environment. Obviously, there are some places where, where beavers are going to get... Killed or moved if they show up there, but there are some systems that people have developed to make it possible to live in the same space. What are some of the more successful ways?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, so I mean, the the most common beaver conflict um, in many places is is the clogging of of road culverts, right? So beavers love building in culverts. Um, I mean, think about it, it; makes sense. It's it's. You know, if you're a beaver and you're you're cruising along, you know, the entire roadbed is sort of this giant dam. And and by plugging up the culvert, you're basically sealing the leak in the dam and creating this this fantastic uh, pond for yourself. Um, But, of course, the issue there is that, you know, when beavers plug up culverts, you know, the water rises, the road often washes out, uh, and it, it can be really expensive to fix. Um, so, you know, the way that those, ha- that those kinds of problems are typically handled is by trapping the beaver, um, which, you know, has a, makes, makes sense. Uh, you're temporarily removing the source of the problem. But, you know, like I said earlier, uh, as long as the habitat is there, the beavers will always be back, right? All you're doing is putting up a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers that, that moves in. Uh, so the way that these kinds of problems are, are solved oftentimes, uh, especially in the, in the northeast, is through the use of this this contraption called a flow device, and a flow device is basically it's basically a pipe and fence system. It's kind of a long, typically plastic pipe um, that that will that will run water through the dam or through the road culvert uh, and basically regulate the height of the pond. So you can say, hey, you know, I like having these beavers here. I appreciate you know what they do for the ecosystem, uh, but I don't want them to wash out the road. And, uh, you know, you can basically use one of these systems to keep the level of the pond at a, at a certain height that's, that's kind of a compromise for both human and beaver. You know, there's enough pond there to make the beaver happy, but uh, not enough that it actually threatens the infrastructure. So these kinds of systems, these flow devices, are, are increasingly popular as, as sort of a, a non-lethal and cost-effective way to uh, manage some of these problems.
0: Well, and we had a comment from Brett, who's a, a- brook trout fisherman and I know you yourself are a big fisherman and he wants to say hey beavers aren't universally good they're they don't do good things for trout streams in the midwest um and I know that there could be an argument there but depending on where you are in the cycle of a beaver I mean it, it may not for a lot of people, it feels like they're not doing what they want them to do. From a fisherman's perspective, share your thoughts about that. Yeah,
1: you know, and I, like I think I think that's a that's a a great point. And I'm and I'm not I'm not a Midwesterner, right? I mean, I you know I grew up I grew up in in uh, the Northeast, and now I live in the Northwest. So um, you know, it, I mean, certainly beaver impacts will will vary from place to place. I mean, I think that you know in 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 the Northeast we probably have. Deeper streams um, than than you guys do in in, in Iowa. And I, you know, beavers create these really great sort of like stepwise pools through through a system. Um, and I mean, I can, you know, I can tell you that that some of the best fishing I've had um, in in New England is has been in, has been in beaver ponds because they create these again these fantastic deep holding pools for for large fish although it's um, it's
0: a little less idyllic than than what we think about with those fresh clean pure streams yeah exactly but you're you know, getting the fish right <laughs> right
1: right you exactly yeah fishing right you're, yeah fishing in, in beaver ponds is not um, right you're not in kind of the classic babbling brook that you would see in a fly fishing catalog for sure but uh, you know they're just great great fish habitat but you know i think i think there's you know there's yeah it's 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 certainly possible that uh, in the midwest you know, there's, there's an issue there. But, you know, I mean, I I guess what I would, what I would say to that is, look, once upon a time, obviously, the entire continent was, was home to many more beavers, and many more brook trout. Um, And, you know, clearly, these, these two animals are capable of of coexisting. Um, And, you know, as you say, it it depends on, on where you are in the cycle, you know, if you get, if you're, if you're, You've got these older complexes that have begun to fill in with sediment. You know, yeah, you can you can you can use you can lose some some tread habitat that way. But you know, early in the cycle when the beavers have first shown up and created a nice deep pool, I think those are those are excellent fishing. So it's true that I mean you create these kind of transitional ecosystems that that may not be good for every species at every point in the cycle.
0: Now, there's always going to be conflict between humans and and beavers, I think, but you share some amazing examples of of how humans are harnessing the power of beavers to improve ecosystems. And we have just a couple of minutes left, but I would love for you to tell us just briefly about Susie Creek in Nevada, which uh, in this case, uh, cattle ranchers have been fighting beavers forever. But in this case, Cattle grazing, managed cattle grazing, and beaver recovery come together and have really renewed a landscape. Tell us briefly about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that story is, is basically that. So in, in northeast Nevada and, you know, and, and so much of the country, um, you know, have been grazed for, for many, many decades. And, uh, you know, cows basically just mowed down all of the riparian, the streamside vegetation um, and uh, you know, created these kind of barren channels um, that you know weren't uh, weren't very good habitat for much of anything. Um, and you know, thanks to some managed grazing, basically fencing off um, certain stream areas, just rotating the cows through the through the stream more quickly. Um, you know, they, they, these guys, these ranchers, basically recovered a whole bunch of vegetation, uh, willow especially. And beavers showed up to eat the willow, uh, and beavers basically created these fantastic um, water sources for for cattle. You know these ranchers who who historically hated beavers really came to love them because they were able to water their cattle, uh, especially during times of drought when you know everybody else in the area uh, had to actually pull their their cows off the range. Um, these guys still, still were able to keep them out there because they had these these wonderful water sources and they got great forage production too. Right? I mean as as, this, as all of this beaver impounded water presses into the ground, recharging aquifers, raising the water table they're getting amazing grass production as well. And of course, that's, you know, that's, that's money for a rancher. Well, um, so they've come to love beavers there.
0: And you call beavers in your book, you call them nature's Swiss army knife. And it, you pretty much seem to say that there's nothing they can't improve.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe I wouldn't go that far. But but certainly, they. I mean, they, they provide all kinds of Really valuable functions, you know one we haven 't talked about but is, is really relevant um, to to the Midwest is, is water quality you know obviously there's so much there 's so much talk now in, in the Midwest about constructed wetlands about you know sort of reducing the amount of, of nitrogen and phosphorus that are running into into streams and rivers and eventually the ocean and beavers do that really well, right they create these fantastic settling ponds where these these agricultural nutrients can filter out and uh, you know you can improve the 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 downstream water quality. So that's another really important um, sort of Swiss Army knife function is that, that water quality improvement.
0: Well, and you even have a, one of the people in your book, you quote a geomorphologist who says, forget trees. If you want to fight climate change, it's entirely possible you're better off planting beavers. So they, they really can affect the ecosystem in, in ways that that are hard to imagine. You share so many really fascinating examples in the book, and I wish that we could spend another couple of hours talking about all of them. But Ben Goldfarb, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: Ben Goldfarb is the author of the book Eager The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. You can find more information about what we're reading and when we're reading it at iowapublicradio.org slash book club. I'm Charity Nebbe. See you next time.